Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Venue 3S, Garmin's all-new hybrid smartwatch that is a perfect blend of function and style. Purpose-built with advanced health and fitness features and the ability to make calls and send texts, the Venue 3S is more than just a fitness smartwatch. It's your personal on-risk coach there to support your every goal. Head over to garmin.com.au to find out more. Our special guest today is Professor Louise Burke. Louise is a sports dietitian with 40 years of experience in the education and counselling of elite athletes. Louise worked at the Australian Institute of Sport for 30 years, first as the head of sports nutrition and then as the chief of nutrition strategy. She was a team dietitian for the Australian Olympic teams for the 1996 to 2012 Summer Olympic Games. Louise's publications include over 400 papers in peer-reviewed journals and book chapters and the authorship or editorship of several textbooks on sports nutrition. Louise is an editor of the International Journal of Sports Nutrition and Exercise Metabolism, and she is also a founding member of the Executive of Sports Dietitians Australia and is the director of the IOC Diploma in Sports Nutrition. Louise was awarded a medal of the Order of Australia in 2009 for her contribution to sports nutrition. Now, I hope that you can all appreciate the amazing talent that Louise brings to our episode today, where we chat all about the lowdown on low carbs. So grab a pen and paper and let's dive into today's episode brought to you by my friends at Garmin. Welcome, Professor Louise Burke, to the Leanne Ward Nutrition Podcast. Lovely to be here. Very excited to have you on today because you are one of the most highly respected and accomplished sports nutrition researchers, I would say in Australia, but probably even in the world. So we're very, very excited to have you on. And we'd love to start by, I guess, knowing a little bit more about your background and how you got into research and the sports nutrition side of things. Well, thank you for the lovely comments to start off with. And it's funny because I've only just started to think of myself as a researcher. I only recently moved into academia where I have a full-time job as a researcher. And when I travelled recently and came back into the country, I actually wrote on my you know, incoming Passport slip, yeah. <laughs> that I was a yeah. researcher. But prior to that, I always thought of myself as a, a sports dietitian practitioner and I wanted to make sure that when I was working with athletes that the kinds of strategies that I would, you know, discuss with them were evidence-based. And so the AIS was a great place to support that kind of work. And over the years, I just sort of kept doing it and found a little niche and have really enjoyed that opportunity, not just for the research that you do, but it's interesting that the process of doing it sometimes is really good because you learn things about athletes and we always do it as a collaborative effort. We don't do research on athletes, we do research with athletes. And you know some of the friendships and the relationships and the collaborations that have come out of working with coaches and athletes in that way have been just as important as the results of the study. So I've really been invigorated by this kind of change in my career at this late stage and I'm hoping that I can do more and better research with the opportunities that academia now offers. 
Yeah, that's amazing. And you've had such an incredible career to date. What have been a couple of the highlights? I mean, particularly for me, I've always known you as, you know, one of the lead sort of nutrition gurus for the AIS. What else has been some career highlights for yourself to date? Look, the highlights for me really has been the AIS and seeing the incredible group of people that have gone through AIS sports nutrition. I look now and see all the leaders of sports nutrition practice, whether it's in the state academies and institutes or the national sporting organisations in Australia and overseas. They've um, A lot of them have been people that came through AIS sports nutrition and you know, I often get given the accolades or you know get praised for having been part of AIS sports nutrition, but really it was such a team effort and so many other people made me look good and made, you know, helped to push my career. So I think, you know, that would be one of the highlights. And then the other highlight is just the relationships and the opportunities of working with the best in the world at what they do, whether it's coaching or being an athlete or even, you know, being a manager or being a sports scientist. It's, you know, always been amazing to work with people who are very good and committed to what they do. And, you know, when it, that worked into a gold medal at the Olympics or whether it worked into, you know, some other way in which someone achieved an outstanding career reward, feeling that you were part of that and contributed or you could just be at the ringside seeing it happen. You know, you had front row seats to see somebody else do something terrific. That's just been a, a such a lovely part of my career just to see what excellence is all about and be able to have empathy with the person who's achieved it. Yeah, that's amazing. And the wonderful thing about nutrition is it can make, you know, 50% difference to an athlete's diet or it can make, you know, 0.01 of a percent to an athlete's diet. But when you're talking about those gold medals, it can come down to such small amounts, can't it? And we can do so many things from a nutrition and a hydration perspective. Absolutely. And, I, you know, I think it's complicated because it's not just the physiological change that you make with people. Sometimes it's the placebo effect. It's the confidence that you give them that they've um, explored everything to the nth degree. And also it's the relationship that you build with the athlete or the coach at the same time that, you know, adds more enjoyment to the whole outcome. You know, some, you know, I can see lots of people break world records. You know, we saw one being broken at the Berlin Marathon on the, the weekend and you look at that and you think, oh, that's fantastic. But I bet the people that were involved in her entourage just got so much more out of it because they know the backstory, they know what it would mean to her. And not that it's all about you that you think, oh, yeah, I did that. It was, you know, my effort that created the difference. But it's just that you have that extra layer of understanding of what that achievement meant to that person and all the, the story that went behind it. Wonderful. Well, I'd love to get, I guess, your thoughts or start off by really talking around carbohydrates because I know for athletes, it's a very important macronutrient. And I would say probably even in the last five to 10 years, there's still a lot of talk, a lot of chatter online about high carb, low carb, what we do with carbohydrates, but particularly around the low carbohydrate, high fat type of diet. So from a sports nutrition perspective, what is your, I guess, basic summary for our listeners at home? And do they largely help or hinder the majority of athletes? Look, it's a great question and there's so many little pockets to it that are important to understand. So one of the things that's really good for people to know is that muscles use a whole range of fuels at the same time. And it's never 100% this and nothing else. There's always different fuels contributing. And 
the ones that we are most interested in when it comes to longer sports are the fat and the carbohydrate. And the reason that carbohydrate has such an interest is twofold. The first is that we don't store a lot of it in our body at the same time. So that there's a possibility that an athlete will do an event of exercise, whether it's training or competition, that's more than the body stores of carbohydrates. So we're sort of continually having to replenish that. And that's not the same with fat. Even the leanest of athletes could, you know, run for, you know, several days just using their body fat stores. And so carbohydrate has an importance because we've got to keep thinking about do I need to put more back in to replace what I have just used up or do I need more for this session that I'm doing? So that's the first thing that's important. And then the second thing that's important is carbohydrate has the capacity to be able to support higher intensity exercise and it does it in two different ways. One is it because it can contribute with anaerobic glycolysis so that in the absence of oxygen it can still produce ATP. And so at those higher domains where you don't have enough capacity to get oxygen to every mitochondria, then you know carbohydrate can do something that fat can't do. And the other thing it can do, even when we're burning it aerobically, is that it can produce more ATP for the same amount of oxygen that's being used. It's about 5% more efficient, even though we know calories-wise that fat has got more calories per gram carbohydrate has more capacity to produce ATP aerobically from a given amount of oxygen. And again, that becomes important at those higher exercise demands where you know, it's oxygen that's becoming limiting, not the fuel substrate. There may be plenty of carbs and plenty of fat around, but if you want to use it in an aerobic manner, then you have to have enough oxygen being supplied at the same time. So carbohydrate becomes very important at higher exercise intensities and that's really what a you know high performance athlete needs to worry about there's not a lot of sports you know even in the tour de france which goes for three weeks and on average the cyclist might move at about 65 percent of vo2 max if you averaged out what's happening and looked at what the peloton's doing that's all good but the people that win are the ones that can sprint to the line or break away or go up the hill. And so even if you're you know, somebody who does most of their stuff at moderate intensities that can be supported by fat, the r- successful athletes generally at least have to have the capacity to suddenly be able to burn on the carbohydrate burners and be able to use it effectively at, at higher intensities. And so one of our worries is why would you choose to have one fuel over the other, particularly the one that can support more moderate intensity exercise if it was at the expense of the ability to use both or to use the the carbohydrate story more effectively? And now we've gone into this with open minds. I mean, I keep saying to people, I don't really care what enhances sports performance as long as it's safe effective and and legal i don't care if beetroot juice or ketone bodies enhancing performance all you want to do is help an athlete enhance their performance so i'd be delighted if keto diets or ketone supplements or fat adaptation improved the performance of an athlete i'd be the first there to try and help an athlete make the most of it and that's why we've done so many studies i mean i've i've spent nearly two decades 
of really focused research, trying to find an angle where this is of a benefit. And we did it first with the non-ketogenic fat adaptation diets, and then we moved into the ketogenic version. And we've done all sorts of hybrids where we've had ketogenic diets with, with carbohydrate restoration. We've had ketogenic diets with ketone supplements, looking for some angle where better use of fat might have that advantage. And so far, we haven't been able to find it for the kinds of sports that I work with, which is, as I said, high-performance athletes doing something that has a high-intensity component, whether it's for the whole event or at those critical moments. Now, I'm quite happy to say that ketogenic diets could have benefits for other kinds of sports. And, you know, I can think of some and I can think of perhaps individual athletes who might respond better than others. For the majority of the conventional sports that I work with in high-performance athletes, we have found it to be a hindrance and it has impaired performance and not a help. It's not a binary system. One's not better than the other. It's all about understanding the context and the nuance of sport and often people don't have the complexity of understanding a sport to do that. I mean, for example, on the on the weekend in Berlin, a lot of people ran that marathon, but they didn't run the same race. The people that took five hours to do it were doing something completely different than the winners. And so even though you can be actually in the same event on the same day under the same weather conditions, whatever, it's a different sport and you have to treat it differently. So it'd be lovely if we could have people understand the complexity of things rather than feeling We've got to be armies and you've got to be the team this or team that. You've got to hate the other team and, you know, do your best to kill them. <laughs> and that's, that's how nutrition's become these days. We've got these cults, these armies, these religions, and they're always right under every condition and the other person's wrong and evil and nasty. And, and that just doesn't do justice to the complexity of nutrition or sport. Mm, absolutely. So are there any, because I know you've done a lot of work and research with race walkers as well, more of that longer distance. Is there any, I guess, benefit from a lower carbohydrate, high fat diet in that population? Or it's really because I assume that they would need that kind of, not that they can sprint to the end of the line, but need that, I guess, extra energy reserves when you're sort of getting to the completion of a race? Or is that a, a population group that would benefit? Well, to, to be honest, there were two reasons why we started doing the the research with the keto diet with race walkers. One was the fact that I was working with them and I had a good relationship and they were interested and we were able to pull our resources and collaborate really effectively. But the second reason was the 50K event, which is no longer on the Olympic program, but it, that was one of the events that Australia had had a history of, of good athletes in. That's about a, a three and a half hour event. And that's the kind of event where on average fat starts becoming more important as a fuel source. I mean, wondered whether it would be able to support the entire race. And we did find impairments in performance that we couldn't overcome. And two reasons for that is one is that even though the average intensity or the, the length of the event might seem as if it's sort of more aerobic. The way that winners win the event is that they do the first 40k at one speed and then they just turn up the engines and they they walk very fast and they have to have that ability to be able to tactically win the race. It's a it's a race that's over a 2k loop and so you're always in touch with what's happening with the rest of the field because you can see them, you know when you turn around and come back you can see 
and so tactically people you know make their mark and they make their moves there's an aid station every 2k and two things that makes that important is one it's often the tactical time when people go in to get their feed that's when someone might take off because it's a time when there's a bit of distraction but the other thing about the event and that feed station means that every 2k every eight or nine minutes you've got the opportunity to have nutrition support and so the ability to both take in carbohydrate as a fuel and also as a mouth sensing you know brain stimulator is really high and so unless you've got an athlete who's got some gastrointestinal reason for not being able to consume something during the race there's a lot of capacity to keep carbs up at a high rate so when we tried to keto adapt athletes and even put carbs back in during races and we did this over shorter distances because it's very difficult to get an athlete to give you 110% in a 50k trial but we got them to do 10k and 20k races which are at the intensity which they'll do that last part of of the race or that part of the breaking away or those sort of critical moments that make the winner. You know, I point out to people if they don't know race walking and and I didn't know it before about 2010, I was one of those people who looked at it and thought, oh, that's a bit stupid. But now I really appreciate it. You know, the um, the world record for 50K is, is 3.32 and the winner of or the, the record holder, Johan Denise, a French athlete, at the 48k mark of that race, he did a kilometre in four minutes. Now, most people couldn't run that in four minutes. And you just imagine he's, he's done, you know, three hours 20 of exercise already and he's been able to find the intensity and the fuel to support it to be able to move that quickly. So it's not just a matter of saying, oh, they don't go very fast over three and a half hours. It's understanding what are the tactics that you need to win. And so when we tried all sorts of different ways of, we could certainly make fat take up more of the fuel. There was no problem with that, but it was at the detriment of your ability to burn carbs. So, you know, what happens in the muscle to retool when you increase its capacity to burn fat and you do that in lots of different ways the the muscle will retool and it changes the amount of fat transporters it changes the amount of fat that's in the bloodstream it changes the transporters that take it from the bloodstream into the muscle it changes the enzymes that burns it in the the mitochondria so you make the muscle better able to burn fat in a in a way that's it takes time but it's it's robust so if you put carbohydrate in on, on top of that what we found, we hadn't thought about this, but the same adaptations that increase your capacity to burn fat are also happening in the carbohydrate metabolism area. And what's happening is the enzymes that break down glycogen, the enzymes that committed into the um, Krebs cycle, the TCA cycle of aerobic metabolism, they're down-regulated. And so even if you have lots of glycogen there or you're taking in plenty of carbs during the event, your capacity to to use them the same way as before is impaired. So what you've basically done is you've enhanced your capacity to burn fat, but at the same time you've nobbled your capacity to burn carbohydrate. And so if your event requires those higher intensity domains, well then you haven't made a very smart decision. Yeah, okay. So it's all around, I guess, the body 
and how it sort of utilizes fat because you're saying you can be kind of fat adapted so your body's utilizing fat better but then we're then compromising those periods of time where you might need to kind of break away then you can't tap into the carbohydrate stores as easily as what you would have as effectively yeah and look remember that athletes who train aerobically become pretty good at burning fat i mean that's part of the adaptation but they become pretty good at burning carbs as well you know sometimes people think that doing aerobic exercise is just all about you know, learning to burn fat better. And it does. But what it makes you do is be able to burn all fuels effectively. And so those training things that you do, you'd like to be able to keep your capacity to burn both things equally improved, not have one jump up at the expense of the other, if you like. Yeah. So that's where we really don't have the research to show that we kind of know how to keep both of those fuel sources burning effectively, do we? No, well, that, that's what training's doing. It's increasing the amount of mitochondria that are in your muscle and their activity. So that's the kind of training that people do. Now, one of the ways in which we can help with that is doing some low-carbohydrate training. So there's a difference between committing yourself to a ketogenic diet and having a high-fat, low-carb diet all the time and having what we now – promote as a periodized approach to carbohydrate where over the week you pick some sessions and you say, well, these are the ones I'm going to concentrate on being very good at burning carbs. So I'm going to have glycogen synthesis before that event. I'm going to you know, fuel up the night before or during the day before I do it in the afternoon. And I'm going to have a pre-training breakfast and I'm going to take in plenty of carbs during that event or that training session. And what I'm doing there is I'm burning carbs and I'm learning both the behavior of consuming them, I'm learning the ability to be able to empty them from my gut and feel comfortable doing it and the muscles learning to to burn them. So that's one kind of training session. And then there are other kinds of training sessions where you say, right, I'm going to work a little bit more on what we call mitochondrial biogenesis that's stimulating the body to want to produce more mitochondria and more active mitochondria so you know more the right enzymes in those mitochondria and if you do some training that is low in carbohydrate that promotes that kind of response as well now you've got to get the balance right because you can't normally train as effectively under those conditions because you don't have the fuel to be able to train as with same quality or the intensity and you may also not enjoy it because it feels harder. The clever coach and the clever athlete is like an orchestra conductor and they can integrate all the different sorts of sessions that you do so, and that again so you know, some people think that athletes just go out and they do the same training every day rather than thinking no they think to themselves what's the laundry list of all the things that I need to be able to do physiologically for my race and then how can I take different kinds of sessions that promote all those different characteristics and then integrate them together so on the day the whole orchestra is working, built all those different parts that I needed and they can all work together in that race. And that's, you know, one of the ways in which we might periodise carbohydrate to try and accentuate the different types of training that an athlete might want to do and the benefits of doing them. And is that, I guess, one of the reasons how we could increase carbohydrate oxidation by utilising different training sessions, some higher carb, some a little bit lower carb? Yeah, so you're, you're trying to say we're going to accentuate all the different sorts of training stimulus. Smart athletes also do some weight training because they want to build muscle strength or they want to be able to become 
injury resistant with the ligaments and and other parts of their body that you know that might be a little bit more fragile so you know there's smart athletes know all the things that they need to have in that race to, to be at their best and they integrate it into their training so what we now call train low is you know part of the armory of of tactics that a, an athlete might use if they're an aerobically endurance based athlete it's interesting to know how much you have to push it from the dietary point because we've done studies in our elite athletes that show that when we deliberately do some train low sessions it doesn't necessarily lead to better outcomes where it's more easily produced in lower level athletes when when we've done studies in more sub elite athletes we can find definite benefits to deliberate integration of these low carbohydrate sessions and the reason we think the difference is there is that high level athletes just train with incredibly high volumes and intensity and one of the reasons we think that they've worked out that that's important is that that kind of training it strips glycogen and so doesn't matter what you eat so much you will still have some sessions of the week which are train low just because you know we, we in our race walking studies we've had some race walkers who do a 40k session in the morning and then they'll back up that afternoon with a 10k session now i don't care what you eat between those two sessions there's just not enough time to synthesize the glycogen that second session is going to be done with lower glycogen and the smart athlete has learned that the quality session in the morning should be backed up by a lower intensity session in the afternoon now the athlete mightn't have known why that works but we can now explain it by saying well that second session is going to give a different stimulus because it's going to be done with a lower glycogen now the sub elite athlete can't do that and so that's probably why they may get greater benefit from deliberately restricting carbohydrate so they can get the same glycogen stripping effect but they need to rely a little bit more on the training diet changes as well as their training exercise load so that mightn't be the only thing that's different but it certainly does make sense and, and when you talk to older athletes so we were lucky enough my husband and I to meet Frank Shorter who won the 1972 Olympic marathon and we were doing research at the time on this periodized carbohydrate approach and we explained to him about doing these deliberate sessions with lower glycogen or lower carbohydrate support and he looked at us and he said yeah I used to do that in 1970 you know <laughs> I just knew that it was important to do that second session in the day and I'd go and do the quality one and I'd do some sessions where I got up in the morning and didn't eat breakfast and just went out for a run and that's just what we did we just knew we worked out that it worked all you scientists have done is explain why you haven't you haven't actually done anything to change practice all you've done is just confirm that we worked it out for ourselves yeah, amazing, isn't it? Uh, it's so much, yeah, just trial and error along the way. And then it, it is nice, though, for practitioners like myself to have that research available to say, okay, th we do want you doing this because we know it's important. We've got the research to show it. So it's one thing that the athletes are doing it. But yeah, it's great that you've, you've done the quality research to, to support it as well. <laughs> and the other thing that I think that's good about doing it is that when you know why it works, you can then attach it to the better training session, or you can understand that it's not 
this way only because, you know, sometimes when people make up a, a concept like train low, they think, all right, every session has to be done like that. And they haven't recognised that, no, no, that was just one of the strategies to produce one of the characteristics that's useful for sports performance. You don't want to throw everything else out just because you've got one. What you've got to work out is how often do I do that one and how do I sequence it into the training session so that I don't interfere with the ones before or after it? You know, you've got to make sure that's that's where, you know, the art of coaching, it's a real, it, it's an art, not just a science because there's, you know, a lot of feel and there's a lot of, you know, trial and error just to get it looking right as well as understanding the scientific underpinning. Mm, absolutely. We're interrupting this podcast to bring you a quick update from today's episode sponsor, Garmin. The Venue 3S is Garmin's latest hybrid smartwatch that is a perfect blend of function and style. Purpose-built with advanced health and fitness features and the ability to make calls and send texts, the Venue 3S is more than just a fitness smartwatch. It's your personal on-risk coach there to support your every goal. It gives you detailed health and wellness insights such as body battery energy monitoring, sleep coaching, a morning report, nap detection, stress tracking, a pulse ox sensor, women's health and pregnancy tracking, meditation, mindful breathing, and even a jet lag advisor. With 30 plus sports apps, animated workouts, and a Garmin coach, you can train purposefully and effectively. The Venue 3S is built for how you move. It can track pushes and offers built-in workouts designed for wheelchair users. With up to 10 days of battery life in smartwatch mode, the Venue 3S Fitness Smartwatch is able to give you a more complete picture of your health. Head over to garmin.com.au to find out more. Now I'd love to pick your brains, I guess, in where the research sits when we compare. You mentioned periodizing our carbohydrates, so sort of changing the timing of those between different sessions. So if we had a full high-carb diet and then we looked at low-carb, high-fat, and then we looked at periodizing carbohydrates as well, where does the research sit when we kind of compare those three diets? So really low-carb, really high-carb, and then playing with the timing of carbohydrates. Periodizing is the smart way what that looks like for an elite athlete and what that looks like for a sub-elite athlete might be slightly different because just of the volume and the intensity. And sometimes it comes down to practicality. I mean, I, I um, often do a faster training session in the morning and that's not just because I think that's going to be good for my mitochondrial biogenesis. It's because I have to get it done before I go to work and I'd rather, you know, get two hours done than have breakfast and wait till I can run after breakfast and only just, you know, run an hour. So, you know, sometimes it's the practicality of, of what you need to, you know, fit in your, in your day as well as the scientific underpinning of what the fuel systems are. But, you know, what most athletes will do will be periodizing over the different phases of the training and there'll be some sort of a base phase where, you know, it's just building up the stamina, the endurance, the mitochondria. If you've had some time off, you know, they've we've reduced their number and their capacity. So going and doing some longer things, including some longer runs that are done without so much carbohydrate support. Now, some people can do it without any. Some people need just to have a little bit trickled in to be able to manage the session. And so you, you find what works for you. 
But then you need to also balance that there are some sessions that are higher intensity and they need to be done with some carbohydrate support. So that might be having breakfast or it might be doing it at the other end of the day where you've had good lunch and you've got some glycogen. And it might be that you take in some carbohydrate during the session as well. And particularly as you get longer runs and you're wanting to start practicing what you do in a race, you need to start being able to know what's your limit and it's you know as I said sometimes it's a behavioral thing it's it's you know what can you grab and get down at the race pace and what feels comfortable in your stomach Um, and so people need to practice that in training sessions so that when they get to the race they're not um, suddenly finding oh that's new I didn't I didn't think it was going to feel like that so putting all that together is great and you know people start thinking about it in a real event-specific context. So the race walkers need to think about having it every 2K, but if you're at a marathon, you might find out when the aid station is going to be and what's going to be at the aid station or whether you're going to carry stuff with you and then start practising how it's actually going to work in, in, in your event. So you can have a scientific standard that says, oh, yes, we will, you know, on paper, the amount of carbohydrate you want an hour is this, but then you have to say, but what's that going to look like? when I do it in in my event? You know, how's it going to happen? How am I going to be able to manage it? What's it going to feel like? How can I tweak it so that it all works? Mm, Because I had a friend who um, enrolled in her very first marathon and unfortunately she didn't finish because her idea, she couldn't do the the gels that a lot of, you know, the marathon runners will take down. And so she thought, you know, I love lollies. And so she was like, I'm just going to eat lollies while I run. And unfortunately she hadn't trained. I think the max run she kind of did was maybe just a little past 20K. Um, And so she thought, you know, I could do that. And then she didn't understand that that last kind of 10K when she was so fatigued, she actually couldn't get down. Like she just couldn't chew and swallow the lollies. So she actually wasn't able to finish the race because she just didn't have that practical, you know, intake of carbohydrate right. And she didn't really time the aid stations either. And in her bottle that she carried a little bottle on her and it only had water and it didn't have, you know, a bit of Gatorade or Powerade or anything to get her through. So you're so right when you say you've got to think about it practically as well. And really, we always say you've got to try to train for the race conditions that you're under, which a lot of people, particularly those everyday athletes like myself, or we're not you know, obviously elite athletes, but we might enter a fun run or something like that or a marathon for fun. We don't really think about those things until we get into it and then it's it kind of falls apart, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, look, I've got my own story. I mean, I did my first triathlon and I this is, you know, so long ago there weren't even sports drinks in Australia and I made my own and concocted it and put it on the on the bike on the bin and hadn't um, worked out that I didn't have the bike skills to be able to reach out with one hand on a pen, on a handle and take the bidden and, and drink it without worrying about everybody else around me. I mean, I'd done all my training by myself and it seemed simple then, but um, I should have thought a bit more about what it was going to take in a race situation to be able to manage the behaviour of getting that bottle to my mouth. Yeah, yeah, so many learnings. Well, I love when you were mentioning around the timing of the carbohydrates because that's what a lot of athletes will do for the benefits. Say, for example, you've got somebody who loves running and they're thinking about running their first marathon. I know a lot of friends who enjoy running and they may potentially be thinking about running a half or a marathon, but they'll always do their run, say, first thing in the morning. They'll they'll do it before the kids wake up, before the day kind of starts. So what you're saying is... Is what, where the research might benefit us is yes, continue to do some of your longer runs in the morning, but occasionally swap it up and do one in the afternoon or do one at night once you've had some good carbohydrate intake throughout the day. Is that right? Yeah, or even just take some carbohydrates out with you. When I do some of my longer runs, I haven't had time to um, get up and get breakfast and feel comfortable with 
a big breakfast, but I certainly can make up for that by taking carbohydrate in during the run. And people have different ways in which they feel comfortable doing things and some of it's physiological, some of it's psychological. Um, you know, I run with people or run with people who like the gels every couple of K. They don't want to be thinking about it too often and they like having a, a big amount at the one time and they feel that gives them a boost. I'm a frequent feeder and I like the lollies. So um, when I run a marathon, I run with my own bag because then I'm self-contained. I don't need to worry about getting knocked over at an aid station. And I play games for myself. I eat them in order of niceness. So I've got <laughs> something to look forward to. And that works for me. I mean, it, physiologically, it's given me the amount of fuel that I, that works for me. But psychologically, it's just a routine that I make a little game out of and that makes me feel happy. But it's completely different. You know, when I've shown it to somebody else, they say, but I don't want to have sticky stuff in my mouth every five minutes. So I have something every K and other people think, oh, oh, that just doesn't work for me. It doesn't feel good. I don't want to be thinking about it. I don't want to be reaching into that bag every five minutes. I'm much happier to go three or four K and then get something then. And I don't want to carry it myself because it annoys me. I'd much rather, you know, be dependent on the aid station, but I know that they're going to be there. So that's how I'm going to do it. So there's so many different ways in which you can achieve the same goal. As long as you have thought through and practiced different things, you'll find that this is the best way of doing it for me. And it might be that in this event, I do it this way, but in a hotter event or an event that's got, you know, different aid stations or feed zone connections, then there's a different way of doing it. But it's, you know, it's being knowledgeable and practicing it. And then on the day, feeling really confident, I've got this because I've I've done it before. Mm. And is it a good idea to always kind of have a backup strategy? Like if your goal is to use the aid stations, but you find that, um, you know, they're, they're just too crowded and you can't get it, or you've, you've got your Gatorade, you're heading off and you drop it. Is it a good idea to have something just as a backup, just in case? Yeah, it, it is good. You know, it's good to it's good to know you've got something in your back pocket that makes up for what you dropped or that you missed. And also that it's not like a catastrophe. Like, you know, sometimes people are so fixated on the plan they're going to follow that if they do drop that something or they weren't able to get it from this aid station, you don't want them running along thinking, oh, that's it, that's disaster, race over, I've completely failed. But say, like, no, that was going to contribute, but I can make up for it at the next one. I'll just make sure that I take a little bit of, of time to make sure that I get enough at this aid station and you know, that I, I have a plan B, I can make up for it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'd love to, I know we're running out of time because I appreciate you're a very busy woman, but I'd love to pick your thoughts on the last two questions around, I know there was a little bit of research around bringing you back to more lower carbohydrates and keto diets, some newer research at the moment around bone health. Can you quickly, I guess, summarize that for our listeners at home, if it had any sort of negative or positive benefits longer term on bone health? Yeah, look, it's a really good question because, you know, people get fixated on what's happening during the race and performance and the muscle without thinking that our whole body's connected. And we're now learning that there's a lot of crosstalk between the organs. And so a lot of organs produce chemicals that send messages to other organs, or there's just a hormonal profile in your whole body that organs are, are, are being exposed to. And what we've been interested with our keto studies, and it wasn't the primary aim of doing the study, but when you spend so much time and effort setting this up, you think, well, what else could we look at to make good use of the of the effort we've gone to? And so we've started to look at well, what happens hormonally to 
the general body and the messages that different organs get from that. So in a low-carbohydrate state, we find that there's an increase in IL-6, which is a hormone that can be both pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory, but in the hands or at least in the time points where we've been looking at it, it's had a pro-inflammatory response. And so the IL-6 is produced by the muscle in response to exercise. And when the muscle's doing exercise with low glycogen levels, it produces more of this IL-6. And the IL-6 has a role as a messenger that goes to other parts of the body and it leaves a, a legacy. And we know it has an effect on iron metabolism. It tends to reduce iron absorption and it acts through the hepcidin enzyme that has, sorry, hormone that has a um, an effect on iron regulation. But it also has an effect on bone. And what we've seen is that it both turns off bone formation and turns on bone breakdown when you look at the bone turnover markers. Now, we've only looked at it in an acute situation where we've taken one session of exercise and we've compared when that exercise was done in a high carbohydrate conditions or with the keto diet. And so we find all these perturbations to immune system, to bone and to iron metabolism in the keto conditions. Now, we would be extrapolating to say, well, if you do that all the time, it's going to be a disaster. And we've certainly set up enough hypotheses to say it's worth testing in the longer thing. And we, we're we trying to set up a scenario where we can have a look at people who are long-term adapted to keto diets to see whether what we see in a response to one exercise session is amplified over the, the bigger lifespan of the person. So it certainly makes you need to think more laterally, though. You you know, nothing happens in a vacuum. It's always going to be interconnected. And so it's very easy to say, oh, it's all about the muscle. It's all about how quickly that muscle can contract and get you to the finish line. But also thinking about, yes, but what's the rest of the body doing while this is happening? What sort of messages are all the different organs and, and metabolic systems getting and how are they are responding? And is that a good thing in the long term? Absolutely, because it might be all well and good to say, well, this particular nutrition strategy is going to help me win a gold medal. But if that particular nutrition strategy long term is dampening your immunity and you're sick before your big race, it's not really going to help anybody out, is it? That's right. And it's interesting. We're very focused on low energy availability in athletes, this energy mismatch. And what we're finding with our keto studies, and we've actually done a study where we compared low energy availability and low carbohydrate availability but high energy, which is the keto diet. So people getting all the calorie requirements but very low carbohydrate to our high energy, high carbohydrate condition. And we found that there was an amplification in the keto diet of some of the things we worry about with the low energy availability diet. So we think that one of the ways in which low energy availability may be having a disadvantage to athletes is just because of the carbohydrate availability. And again, this has all been an acute exercise scenario. So we need to join up those exercise sessions to say, well, is that explaining all of what's happening with low energy availability? And does that mean that the chronic keto diets making your body think, or at least some of your, the metabolic systems in your body think that you've got low energy availability because the carbohydrate has been the driver of the response? 
Fascinating, isn't it? And then I promised last question very quickly. I'm very interested in females and female physiology, which I know that we really need to research a little bit more, but anything exciting that you know of that's coming up, really particularly looking at female athletes? Yes, look, I I had a bit of an epiphany in um, 2018. There was a request at the AIS for somebody to do a talk on, you know, females and sports nutrition and no one else put their hand up and I thought, oh, well, I'll do it. And I started looking thinking, hmm, there's not as much specific research on females as you might have thought. And then I thought, I wonder how I've done. And I added up all the studies that I'd done on performance over the, you know, 30 years of my career. And it turns out that I'm one of the worst defenders in terms of who do I choose to be the subjects in my studies. And so I had to put my hand up and say, I'm guilty and I've been part of the problem and now I need to be part of the answer. So we've started a number of different PhD programs examining female athletes specifically. And we've set up a series of studies looking at, we've called them our female athlete research camps, where we've really focused on having an opportunity for female sports and female athletes to have the same sort of research experience that I've been easily giving to males up until now. And it's been terrific in terms of the learning experience because it is much more difficult to run studies with female athletes. You've got to take that menstrual cycle into account and it's a bit of a an enigma and even though you might say oh well it's you know we, we understand females have menstrual cycles and we can accommodate different phases and their hormone profiles the fact is that no two females have the same cycle and so it's you're dealing with you know individuals in a way that's more amplified than just you know the average athlete and also learning about other things that might be a little bit different about females. Sometimes it's the whole attitude to nutrition and research. You know, I I think why did I not do more studies on female athletes? And sometimes it's because there's fewer of them. You know, often, you know, females have much less support to be professional athletes. And so if you're thinking, oh, I want to do a study on elite athletes, it's more easy to round up enough males to make up your numbers sometimes than it is to get females and sometimes those females might be really interested but they're having to work jobs and uh, and families etc and they haven't got the same time availability even though they might be interested and sometimes females are just a bit less enthusiastic about doing some kinds of research uh, I, I know as a female I love what I eat and, and you know I, I really enjoy my relationship with food and if someone said to me for oh, for a month you're going to come in and do a study and we're going to feed you what we think rather than what you like I think oh that's a bit of a thing for me like I'd, I'd be giving up an enjoyment factor in my life if I couldn't really choose what I felt like eating whereas if you say to a male come for a month and we'll feed you they think great free food and I don't have to think about it so there's so many different ways in which males and females are are different as athletes and as research subjects and I'm learning new skills of of thinking about what's a way of working with females that makes it a good experience for them and that's improving my research skills as well as trying to get to the bottom of how are we going to account for this menstrual cycle and how are we going to anticipate what differences there could be between two females so that we can try and do something that's measuring something that we're expecting rather than it being just completely you know crazy. Yeah amazing so it's sort of a big watch this space over the coming years hey? Yeah, and look, there's a lot of other people like me that have recognised that they haven't been doing their jobs properly and we're all now trying to make up and do a much better job with female research. 
Wonderful to hear. All right. Well, Professor Louise Burke, it was amazing to have you on the podcast today. We're very grateful for your time. I know you're quite active on Twitter. So if you'd like to let our listeners know where we can follow you or if you've got any other social media pages that you like as well, I'm sure our listeners would love to give you a follow. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm one of these people that joins things and then, you know, forgets to do it or gets frustrated at it, but I try with Twitter. So I'm at, at Louise M. Burke and hopefully I can say enough interesting things or not get too frustrated and keep myself on it so that that's a good place to find me. Amazing. Well, thank you so much and we hope to have you back on the podcast very soon with some new exciting female-based research as well. <laughs> Thanks, Leanne. It's been great. <laughs> 